Hello, everybody. My name is Jeremy Augusta, and this is the In It Together podcast. Um, this is a special solo episode, so it is just me today. We're going to be talking about Trump, uh, Kavanaugh, and voting. So first things first, Kavanaugh has been admitted to the Supreme Court with a vote of 50 to 48. I believe the reason that number doesn't equal 100 is because one person was out like celebrating a birthday party or something, and somebody else voted um, present. So rather than vote yes or no, they just said they were there. Um, some of the more painful ones are, of course, Jeff Blake, who is the reason that the whole um, that there was even an illusion of an SBI investigation, even though it wasn't an actual investigation. Um, then there is, of course, Joe Manchin from West Virginia. He is the only Democrat to vote against or to vote for Kavanaugh, rather. And then there is Senator Susan Collins from Maine who was a bit of a swing vote. She's from a kind of a mixed area, and she's been a moderate um, Republican. Um, they all voted to admit Brett Kavanaugh. So with votes like this, and like extremely high-stakes votes where the candidate Kavanaugh is clearly flawed, Democrats should not look to Republicans like grasping at straws that could be allies because it just doesn't work. There are no Republican allies and moderate Democrats like Manchin who voted for Kavanaugh are not really Democrats. So not following party line and just completely like hanging your fellow Democratic senators out to dry is lunacy. And I hope Manchin doesn't win his re-election. Um, the thing is, and why and what this Kavanaugh hearing shows more significantly, is that the political parties are not playing the same game right now. Okay, The Republicans have basically, especially Mitch McConnell, have basically said, win at all costs. And the Democrats have not done that. The Republicans don't have popular policy. They don't have popular candidates, and Kavanaugh is not a popular pick. What they do have is fear and telling people to be afraid. So they're telling people, be afraid of women, be afraid of minorities, and it's working. We saw this in 2016 with Trump being elected. Republicans using fear to get people out to vote and to get people to vote for candidates who might not even have their best interest at mind is the Republican strategy to win, and it's working. What Republicans are doing now is packing courts and it's eliminating laws to help people to vote and it's making it easier for big money to give them more money. So a lot of progressives that I know and a lot of progressive candidates talk about not taking corporate money. And I think this is a totally misguided but admirable goal. I think Democrats should take as much money from as many big corporations as they possibly can because it's the only way to fight a Republican Party who is doing the same thing. Now, the Republicans have control every branch of government, and the only way to stop this or to reduce it in some way, I think, is to take some of some corporate money. Because if you can, if you can outspend Republicans, if you can perform as well as you're doing now, uh, as Democrats are, without taking corporate money. If you start taking corporate money, I think you can win. And winning is the bottom line in politics. And then there was, of course, Donald Trump mocking Ford's testimony. 
Um, if you saw him on stage, he kind of looked like a deranged pudge, pug, pudge. He was basically calling her a liar, um, how she can't remember anything and how her story isn't believable, which um, does, of course, contradict what he said about her testimony last week, which um, could suggest that Donald Trump demonizing these victims and rallying behind Kavanaugh and saying, look at this poor guy, his life is ruined. Look at what happened to his daughter or to his daughters who had to watch this and his wife. His, Donald Trump's push to make them seem the victims is something that I think the Republicans want to energize their base to get them out to vote um, next month. So Donald Trump talking about how disgusting it is um, that his life has gone down the drain and how, how bad it is for Kavanaugh now is supposedly something that Republicans could see and then go out and vote. I know there's been recent polls lately showing that Republicans have actually turned around on Kavanaugh. So at the beginning of his selection, Kavanaugh was pretty unpopular, and now that's slowly going up. The same thing has happened to polls um, asking Republicans if they're going to go out and vote. So Republicans, uh, before this whole Kavanaugh debacle, were not as likely to vote um, than they were after the Kavanaugh debacle. So that's one of the few things that could be pushing Republicans out into an election year where it looked like Democrats were really going to show up. And hopefully Democrats do show up. If Kavanaugh being admitted to the Supreme Court and Donald Trump mocking sexual assault survivors does not get Democrats out to vote, I have no idea what will. That's really all I can... Um, it's all I can handle about this Kavanaugh debacle because, quite honestly, I am very tired of it. Um, in more uplifting news, the New York Times released a massive piece um, basically calling Trump a fraud and talking about how he has scammed his way into getting um, or paying less taxes. So the story by David Barsow, Suzanne Craig, and Russ Bootner, um, you will need to double-check that pronunciation. But the story says, and I quote, the president has long sold himself as a self-made billionaire, but a Times investigation found that he received at least $413 million in today's dollars from his father's real estate empire, much of it through tax dodges in the 1990s. That's the uh, lead, and then the article goes on. Trump's, the president's parents, Fred and Mary Trump, transferred well over $1 billion in wealth to their children which could have produced a tax bill of at least $550 million under the 55% tax then imposed on gifts and inheritances. The Trumps paid a total of $52.2 million, or about 5%. So instead of playing, paying 50% or 55% tax on those inheritances, the Trump children, including Donald Trump, only paid 5 Uh He did this by dodging taxes and setting up fake corporations undervaluing real estate, and taking improper tax deductions. So if you've done the things that Donald Trump has done, as shown by this New York Times piece, there is no reason to release your tax returns, which is why Donald Trump hasn't released his tax returns, and why he says he won't release his tax returns. The article goes on, By age three, Mr. Trump was earning 200000 a year in today's dollars from his father's empire. He was a millionaire by age eight. So by the age of eight years old, 
Donald Trump, the self-made billionaire that he projects himself as, was already a millionaire. Really shows that Donald Trump is a working man. By the time he was 17, his father had given him part ownership of a 52-unit apartment building. Soon after Mr. Trump graduated from college, he was receiving the equivalent of $1 million a year from his father. The money increased within the years to more than $5 million annually in his 40s and 50s. So Donald Trump has given tens of millions of dollars, three trust funds, stocks, and $10,000 one year for Christmas. So the illusion that Donald Trump is some man of the people, some titan of the working class, is insanely misguided. And Democrats obviously know this, but Republicans just refuse to accept this fact, despite how much evidence could possibly be mounted against it. Um, so even more, the Trumps dodged hundreds of millions in gifts in gift taxes by submitting tax returns that grossly undervalued their properties, claiming they were worth just $41.4 million. The same set of buildings were sold off for 16 times more than that a few years later. Um, so this is a massive piece, and while that was one of my favorite parts, my favorite, favorite part is that Donald Trump tried to change his father's will right before he died. So when his father was like 85, Trump sent him a letter telling him to sign it immediately that would give Donald Trump control over his estate. Quote, he confided to family members, oh, this is uh, Donald Trump's father, he confided to family members that he viewed the council, the, the codicil, which is the document that uh, Donald Trump sent, as an attempt to go behind his back and give his son total control over his affairs. He said he feared that it would let Donald Trump denude his empire, even using it as collateral to rescue his failing businesses. So again, the notion that Donald J. Trump is an everyman who's worked hard all of his life is flat out wrong. Oh, and the small loan of a million dollars that he allegedly paid back from his father was actually $60 million and almost none of it was paid back. It appears that Donald Trump spent most of his time, uh, his most of his adult life, rather, dodging taxes and getting his family out of paying taxes. Trump is not a good businessman. He's actually a terrible businessman because if he would have invested this money in, like, an index fund, he would have made way more than any of the trash uh, companies that he started. Going back to the uh, Kavanaugh confirmation a little bit, um, Cory Booker, uh, if you did not hear, I think it was our first episode, Cory Booker published documents about Kavanaugh that the Republicans did not want released to uh, the general public. In doing so, he kind of risked his, he risked his seat, so he could have been expelled from the Senate for doing it. He was not, unfortunately, for, or fortunately for him, rather. Um, and while I was mocked two weeks ago for picking Cory Booker to win the 2020 election, I did at least guess that he would run, and it seems like he is. So he's been posturing for a long time, like I said. There's also been uh, several Twitter accounts that have popped up with uh, blue check marks and like that look like super packed Twitter accounts. Um, they could possibly just be out there to see what reactions are to Cory Booker running, but nonetheless, they exist. Um, so he went to Iowa, which is the first, I believe, or one of the first um, Democratic primary areas. Uh, last year it was, um, so the way Iowa system works, Iowa's primary system works is you have to caucus. So there's a big room with a bunch of people. 
and those people have to decide on which candidate to vote for, essentially. Um, Bernie Sanders won the popular vote, but the Democratic superdelegates gave it to Hillary Clinton, which is kind of which is kind of an example of why Democrats um, have now been pushing to get rid of the superdelegate system, which basically allows um, independent delegates to vote for primary candidates regardless of the popular vote. So, for example, I did think I think actually Bernie Sanders did win, and then several of the superdelegates, all but one, voted for Hillary Clinton, which is kind of, it's dumb, right? It's very dumb. Um, so, uh, Cory Booker was in, in uh, Iowa endorsing and helping campaign for candidates in November, and it seems like he was kind of posturing to make a run at the presidency. So he said, quote, how long will it take? I'm going to tell you. Not long now, quoting uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, because it's not long until November. So Cory Booker going to Iowa, campaigning and saying things like this, not to mention um, Iowa Democratic National Chair Committee member and former state party chairman um, Scott Brennan saying, you don't give a speech like that unless you're running for president and Cory Booker calling himself or saying that he had a Spartacus moment, it really seems to be pointing in the direction of Cory Booker running. Now, 2020 is a long way away, as my friend Elio pointed out on the podcast dedicated to talking about 2020 candidates. However, the Democrats need something right now to look forward to. So right now, we're looking towards midterms, and if those go the way that Democrats want them to go, then the Democrats will have the House, probably, and possibly the Senate, although that is a much harder get. So if things go good there, that's a very good starting place to start talking about who is running and like which policies are going to work and whether Democrats are going to go more progressive or if they're going to go more centralized, because that's a large question. And nobody knows how each of those policies will stack up against Trump's republicanism. The worry is if people go moderate, then the progressive voters won't be excited and they won't vote. The opposite side is that if he go if the candidate he or she goes too progressive, then they're going to alienate moderates and people are going to vote for Trump. I however do not think any moderates are going to vote for Trump. I think going hard left is possible to win and that's why that's probably where Booker's going to be. So Booker, Warren, Sanders are all part of this kind of, well, I don't think they are strictly justice Democrats. They're part of the justice Democrats, um, almost democratic socialist-esque, although they are not clear democratic socialists, except for Bernie Sanders. Them taking the these left stances are one of the only things that gets Democrats excited to go out and vote. That, and possibly... Uh, opposing Trump, which we will see uh, this November. But Cory Booker going out and running and sticking his neck out is a very interesting move because it shows that some candidates are excited to get out there. And I have a feeling the Democratic stage is going to be very large. So there's going to be Booker, Warren, um, possibly Bernie Sanders running from the progressive wing. And these people are all going to have two years to campaign and make their cases against Trump. And they're going to need to differentiate themselves from each other. And when the primaries do come, they're going to need to make voters... Rec like. So the way, the way Bernie did it, we'll go back. 
the way Bernie got voters to go out and to get excited and to vote for him is just to make them really excited and to give them policies that are fresh and policies that will genuinely help them. Whereas Hillary Clinton was greatly assisted by the superdelegates. She was greatly assisted assisted by the DNC. And she had incredible name recognition, for better or worse. If somebody can combine that, if a 2020 candidate can combine name recognition and party support and get the progressive wing of their party excited, and they have two years to do this, so they should be able to, then the Democrats can win in 2020. And while it might be early for, for me to be talking about this on a podcast, there are Democrats all over rooms in Washington, D.C., drawing out maps and speculating on who could beat Trump because they're absolutely thinking this far ahead. And tons of Democratic possible candidates are hiring people to go out and scope and to start thinking whether or not they have a chance in the election. And Booker coming up first and saying that he's going to do it, or not saying, but he's greatly insinuating that he is going to make a run, is one of the things that's going to get other candidates to go, oh shit, I need to get my stuff together and I need to start canvassing and I need to start throwing out tests and seeing how my name does with these groups and what groups I need to handle. So while it is over two years away, these preliminary um, I guess they're like probing these probes into what the Democratic Party wants and what can beat Republicans are things that get Democrats excited to go out and vote and they're things that get Democrats excited to go out and run. So that's why Booker going to Iowa and promoting these things is important and that's why it's a big deal. Do I think Booker's going to win? Probably not. It seems that the presidential frontrunners in the primaries almost never, or the before the primaries, rather, are almost never the people who come out of it on top. So Hillary Clinton was the favorite in 2008, and then Barack Obama ended up winning. Um, and then in 2016, Donald Trump was absolutely not the favorite to win. And then here we are um, with President Trump. Another possible 2020 candidate, Suzanne Rice, who is the former national security advisor and U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under Barack Obama, um, responded to a tweet from a popular Democrat uh, political veteran, Jen Patsky. Uh, She tweeted, who wants to run for Senate in Maine after Suzanne Collins uh, voted yes on Kavanaugh? Collins retweeted it and just said, me? And while uh, Collins got 70% of the vote in her last race, um, there's now a, there was a uh, crowd pack uh, website, which is like a super pack, but for like small donors that had collected, or that has now collected 3.5 millions of dollars. Huffington Post reports that there is another million for major donors. And they threw out the number 6 million, but I could not find further specifications on where the other um, two and a half million were coming from. Um, so if Collins does run against, or if um, Rice does run against Collins, she has a big head start. Um, and then, um, what's his name? Mitch McConnell said that Collins keeping her seat in 2020 is his top priority. 
But now that all the election stuff, and the, or I'd, I'd like to take a break, rather, from uh, the Kavanaugh stuff and get a really good feel-good story in. And this is my, my favorite thing I've read this week. Um, Amy Carudo, a law student, was trying to go to her guitar lessons in D.C., and um, she was in a wheelchair, and she was crossing the street. And while she was in the middle of the street, um, turned around and saw Bernie Sanders, and she was just hanging out there. And then Bernie Sanders, quote-unquote, saved her or something like that. Like, he got her off the street and then took a selfie. And, man, is this photo just the cutest thing ever. Um, and the reasons like this are why Bernie Sanders is the most popular politician in America. Um, now that that's all out of the way, um, the most important thing you can do uh, in November, although the reg- uh, the deadline to register to vote is up, is to go vote. So, when you do go vote, bring some sort of identification. Um, this includes Michigan driver's license, a driver's license or personal identification card issued by another state, federal or state government issued photo identification, a U.S. passport, military identification card with photo, student ID with photo, high school or accredited university. So that includes your um, college ID folks um, and or a tribal identification card with photo. So when you do go vote, bring any or all of these. Um, remember, if you're in line, don't get out of line. Uh, the polls cannot close while you're sitting there and make sure your voice is heard. Thank you all for listening. This has been the In It Together podcast with just Jeremy Augusta. Have a good day. Thank you.